Thanks for listening to the podcast of First Alliance Church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. For more information about our church or to watch a video recording of today's message, visit us online at facws.org. Comes to him, as we have seen, with very, very real temptations. The temptations of Satan that he offers are not lies. And we encountered how difficult it is to consider that Satan is not always lying when he uses the things in this world to tempt us. Last week we talked about how that plays out in politics. How the temptation to power is one that every person succumbs to, whether in support of a particular candidate or party at any level, thinking that if only so-and-so would win, we'll be saved. The week before that, we looked at the temptation to take care of ourselves at the expense of following the Lord's will, which might put us, as we sang earlier today, in mortal danger. Jesus was starving, and Satan said, turn these stones into bread, and Jesus said, no, it is by the word of God alone that we live, by every word that comes from the mouth of God, not by bread. And here today, we encounter yet again another real temptation This isn't a dream, and it's not a myth. Start in verse 5 of the book of Luke, chapter 4. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it's been delivered to me, and I give to it whom I will. And if you then will worship me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only You shall serve. So last week, what do you worship that determines how you act and where your hope lies? And then it says in verse 9, And he, that is the devil, took him, that is Jesus, to Jerusalem. So away from all the enemy nations around Jerusalem to the very center of the worship of God, set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, Throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you. And Satan gets tricky. He uses two verses this time. Last time he only used one. On their hands he will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is written, or it is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. What Jesus has done here is amazing. He has rejected his bodily well-being. And then he has rejected all the power that is conceivable on earth, being the kingdom of all the nations, being the ruler of everything. But the third temptation is the hardest because it's the one that Jesus knew most intimately. The third temptation was to garner worship through the abuse of God's name and God's power, to become a celebrity through miracle, as it were, to focus their attention on him. Because what happens as Jesus is standing on the top of the Temple Mount? It's the highest point in Jerusalem. The temple at the time would have been the highest building in Jerusalem. It was relatively new, having been constructed largely by Herod. It would have been all in the beauty of its glory and gold. And, and, and all of the people would have been gathered there on a regular basis for the sacrificial system. The blood of the animals would have been pouring down in the courtyard as people brought it from near and far to atone for their sins. 
This was the epicenter of the nation of Israel. Here was all the focus of the worship of God. And we just read in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, that Jesus was high and exalted all of his days in heaven, seated on the throne, and the robe of his glory would fill the temple. And in Revelation, we read that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. For Jesus to be exalted, high, praiseworthy, and praised, worshipped, glorified above all else, to be the star of all of heaven and earth is the default position as the Son of God. To be starving alone in a desert with nobody knowing where he was, why he was there, what had happened to him, or what could happen to him, was in fact a rather abrupt shock. I don't know if you've ever had that occasion. Some of you are woodsy types. You're, you're the types that like to go out in the woods or be alone. But not all of us were raised in such a way. I was not necessarily a city boy, but I've been raised in the suburbs my whole life. And when you walk in the suburbs, you pass by houses and the library, and there's the store, and there's you know, the Best Buy or whatever, and you're walking and seeing people and waving, and everybody has their dogs, and who knows what, right? The point is, is there's people. But occasionally you decide, I'm going to go get alone. And you go find a spot. And just the other day, I had this occasion. I went, uh, I had a meeting in, in uh, uh, Chapel Hill early in the day. Uh, and then I had a meeting in Raleigh later in the day. So I had about three hours to kill. So I drove to Falls of the Noose uh, to the Mountains to Sea Trail, which runs along the south side of the Falls of the Noose. Uh, lake, which is north of Raleigh. And I parked my car on the side of the road, and there in the bushes was the entrance to the mountain to sea trail. And I got in, and I got about a mile in, and I realized I am objectively totally alone. And then there was this pathway that ran over a lake that had no railings on either side, and it was about 18 inches wide. And as I was walking along that, I thought to myself, if I drop my cell phone in this lake, Literally, nobody would find me. And if I die drowning in this lake, I was alone. And for a suburbs boy like me, or some of you might be city folk, or you might be homebodies who are always around people or around your stuff, to be alone, to be away from people is almost shocking, and especially more so in this day and age when we have our cell phones all the time, and we have Facebook, and the news, and YouTube, and videos, and, and we constantly can stay connected. To be alone is, is unbearably ground shifting. It's almost like being in outer space. Just take a teenager, as Derek has done, as I have done, take them or a group of them on a retreat and say, you can't use your cell phones all weekend. It's like pouring salt on a snail. They just, <laughs> but what will happen to my fingers? What do I do with them? Ah. And they walk around like this for the whole weekend. But we're like that too now. I mean, we point at the young ones, but, but folks that are older use the internet way more than young people in many occasions. Or they watch several more hours per day of television. The peak 
uh, uh, number of hours watched by somebody is the first 10 years after their retirement years. 80%, 60 to 80% of the time that you spend on your job gets replaced by television when you retire, if you're the average American. That's just a statistic. So even when we're alone in our homes, we're not alone because we have voices. We have faces. We have things that we see, that we hear, that we digest. But to be out in the woods, nowhere, no cell service, no ability to connect to anybody, just you. There's a few things that you come to realize. Chief among them is how little you actually matter. Because you start thinking in your mind, if I just were to disappear right now, who would actually wonder where I am for how long? My wife, maybe in 30 minutes to an hour. Maybe some of my old friends in a few days. Maybe in a month or two, you know, somebody might say, oh, that guy, what happened to him? A few years from now, somebody might see a random Facebook post and ping you and say, hey, where, where were you, buddy? What happened? You begin to realize how addicted you are to the notion that people around you know you. You begin to realize why this next word becomes so dominant in our cultures, not just American culture, in every culture, and that is the word celebrity. Because to be known by hundreds or thousands or millions of people can be one of the most potent drugs known to man. To be beloved by people worldwide for this, that, or the other. To be worshipped is amazing. Parents know this, hopefully at some point in their life, when their kid looks up at them and is just starstruck, and you're amazing, daddy, and you just go, why, yes, I am. <laughs> Isn't that right, Olivia? And she goes, ah. Sure, sure, yeah. My kids aren't in the room, I could tell this. Yet just yesterday, we were driving back from somewhere and Olivia had had a rule and the daughters successfully uh, debated the rule with their mother and their mother bent on the rule. And I said, children, now praise your mother. And you would have thought I held a gun to their head because they were like, oh, thanks mom, whatever. And I was like, no, tell her she's wonderful. Tell her she's amazing. Why? Because it feels good to be admired. It's right for a child to acknowledge the fact that their mother was gracious to them. Don't you love it when somebody looks up to you? We're such fools for celebrity that our culture has created an entire category of false celebrity called the influencer. Have you heard of the influencer? The influencer has no job has four million followers on Instagram and does stupid things so that people will look at you so that you can then get somebody to give you free clothes or a couch or a pillow that you advertise on your influencing Instagram account. One of the chief expenditures of the now suspended campaign of candidate Michael Bloomberg was influencers on Instagram. And I praise Jesus that he lost because at least that avenue of political influence was shut down a little bit. Last thing we need is politics everywhere. Already it seems like it, doesn't it? 
just last year, or was it the year before, four young people who are tremendous Instagram influencers, knowing for doing dumb and illegal things like going out to Old Faithful in Yellowstone and actually touching it, which is wildly illegal and foolish, died because they were trying to take pictures over the edge of a waterfall for, as they say, the gram. Do it for the gram. Ask the young people, they'll tell you. It's a thing. Do it for the vine was what I did, but that's gone now. It's dead. So now it's like, do it for the gram or TikTok. You know, do it for the TikTok. Whatever. I don't know what the kids say. My point is simple. Jesus was fully man. And if we believe that, we know that he was fully tempted as we are. And what an easy, in fact, even worse temptation than we can ever know it would have been for Jesus to be standing over the people who ought to rightfully worship him and throw himself down so that angels would catch him and he would be lifted high and all would stop and wonder. God's power and might would have been made manifest. He would have that moment of admiration which he deserved. And for him to do that was no small thing. Jesus was the commander of the Lord's armies. He was heralded by angels. They showed up to his parents in separate dreams. They showed up to Elizabeth. They showed up to all these different people to explain that Jesus was going to be the Messiah, the Savior of the world. He was all about angels. Angels would not be a problem for him to command. Satan's quoting scripture is not wrong. But what is wrong is the purpose Jesus' rebuke comes from Deuteronomy, from the same place that his first rebuke comes from, which is, do not put the Lord your God to the test. The full text out of Deuteronomy is, do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa and Meribah, which are places of particular import in the history of Israel. I've covered that in full in other sermons. But in those places, the Israelites who had known comfort and then were displaced in new discomfort because they were in exile, complained to God, grumbled for one reason or another, and asked that God would deliver in a unique and special way. Or they just said, forget it, we're abandoning God and we're going back to Egypt. And God said, do not test me. He judged the nation in both of those instances. In this circumstance, for Jesus to call down angels would have been Jesus saying, God, I deserve this. This worship, this protection from angels. I'm your son after all. I know heaven after all. I know what I experienced for all eternity past. There's no reason why I should be suffering as I suffer. But he didn't, did he? He said, don't test God. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. What Jesus is saying is what he will say repeatedly through the rest of Scripture, which is, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not my will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy will be done. What does Jesus say in the Garden of Gethsemane? 
Instead of being lifted high by angels and protected, Jesus instead finds himself mere hours from losing his life, from being whipped, beaten, bruised, and abandoned. And he's on his knees and he's weeping blood. And he says, Father, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. In that moment, he could have fled. He could have run off. He could have disappeared into the wilderness. He could have called down angels to conquer the Roman army. He could have done anything in his power to protect himself, but he did not. Instead, do you know what happened next in that moment? Jesus finishes his prayer, and we're not given an answer from God. And then Jesus goes up and does the opposite of what Satan told him to do. Jesus goes to a stone. We call it Golgotha. The Greek word in the Bible, which is kind of funny that we don't translate it thus, is actually crania or cranium which is a word that we recognize more easily as the place of the skull, or more directly, the place, the bones which contain the brain. It was a rock outside of the city a little ways. And there were three crosses put up. It was a place known for executing criminals. Why? Because on the way in, you would see them. And you would see what the Romans would have written on the top of the cross to identify what this person had done. Thief, rebel, treason, whatever. Jesus here knew that he would not be high and lifted up over the temple until that day that his arms were pierced with nails and his feet were pierced with nails and his side would be pierced with a spear. And he would be lifted high overlooking the temple and die. No angels would tend to him. In fact, what do the Roman rulers say? The same thing Satan says. If he's the son of God, surely he can come down from that cross. He can have angels come and take care of him. In this third temptation is a picture of what Jesus will face at the end of his life. It's the same temptation as the prayer which says, God, take this cup from me. But he doesn't end there, does he? He says, but not my will, but yours be done. Why am I telling you this? Three reasons. First, it is very easy to hunger for celebrity at any level or to want what we think we deserve because we're a follower of Jesus Christ. There's that whole name it and claim it movement that's out there, and you can find it anywhere. If you just name what you think God is going to give you, and you deserve it, and you claim it, then it will be yours. My folks, I can tell you that if name it and claim it worked, Duke wouldn't have lost a game this year. Especially not at Wake Forest where I sat with my parents into double overtime in sheer misery. The ball would have dropped and not rimmed out at the end of the first overtime. Name it and claim it doesn't work. I had no greater moment of faith than I had in that moment. If name it and claim it worked, then every time we prayed for our friends 
to come to know Jesus, they would. Every time we had a broken limb or cancer, God would take it away as far as the east is from the west. Name it and claim it doesn't work because when we name it and we claim it, whose will is supreme? Ours. Healing only occurs when it is God's will for his glory and we're a part of that glorious moment. Salvation only occurs for his glory when people bend the knee and acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, not because they're cajoled, their arms are twisted, or somebody just was so vociferous in their prayers. Do we take seriously when the Lord teaches us to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? If we do, we have to reject the notion that we're in charge of our lives or our faith walk. We can't build ourselves into better Christians by reading X amount of books or praying X amount of hours per day or doing things in a certain fixed pattern that we think will result in perfect Christianity. We can't do that to our kids. I can't tell you how many parents I know whose hearts have been broken because they thought if they just followed this fixed pattern of moral righteousness that their children would just come out right. Almost like their parenting is a, a, a sausage maker and they stuff the kids in. If they just get it right, the kids come out right. Boom, Christian kids. Now, it doesn't work like that. Much to our chagrin, it would be a lot easier to do that now, wouldn't it? Rather, it is when we conform our lives to the will of God and we evidence that to our children. We say, child, I am not perfect and I don't know the way to righteousness. I cannot make you perfect. But rather, I know that I am not perfect and Jesus saved me. He can save you too. That's the way. Not only is it a way, it is the only way to parent your child into heaven is repentance. Repentance, brokenness, a need for a savior. I want to encourage all of you, when you look at your life and you ask yourself, what do I want in my life? And we make lists, we make the old bucket list, right? I love the bucket list, that's my favorite or we have our Pinterest list, or whatever we might have. Are we willing to take everything that we hope and dream for in our lives and bend it to the will of God and ask that his will would reign supreme, whatever that might look like? That is the walk of faith, the way of a champion of Christ. And what if that way meant that you were to be alone as I was in the woods? What if that way meant that you were to be like the son of God who was despised and rejected by men instead of being a celebrity? See, we know Jesus as the praiseworthy one, right? Millions of people worldwide have already praised Jesus' name this Lord's Day. Millions more as the hours carry on. And we're here doing it right now. And we think Jesus, ultimate celebrity. No, in his day on the cross, who was there? Most of his disciples scattered. The crowds which adored him said, crucify him, cast him down. His mother was there. 
some of his disciples were there, but even they were afraid. His favorite disciple, the one that would lead his church, had rejected him three times in a row, back to back to back. He was the anti-celebrity. He was a nobody. The thing that it said on the top of his cross was what? The king of the Jews. They put that there ironically. Not out of acknowledgement of worship. They put that there as if to say, this dummy thought he was the king of the Jews. Look at what happens to any of you who claim to be the king of the Jews. You will go on the mount of the skull. You will look out over the city that you claim to be a ruler of, and you will die as you watch Rome rule. That's what Jesus saw as his eyes closed. No angels to lift him high. No worshipers at his feet. No crowds adoring him. Nothing. So when Jesus faces Satan and says, don't put the Lord your God to the test, it's because he knows that the sacrifice is worth it. That the way of God, as painful as it is, is worth it. The first I say is reject your will and your celebrity and instead bow to the will of the Lord. But the second thing I want you to recall is this, because it is worth it. It is worth it. Jesus is worthy, we just sang, of every name that we give him of admiration, of every ounce of our worship, because he died on the cross. How do I know this? In Revelation, they have the scroll which contains all of the future. And the king who's seated on the throne, which represents God, is surrounded by the elders and the animals, which represent the nations and the earth. And they have the scroll of the future, and they say, who is worthy to open the scroll? And then it says, I saw one looking like a lamb led to the slaughter. And it says, worthy is he to open the scroll. Jesus' worth was proven on the cross. But not only that. Not only was it his worship toward him that was expanded on account of his sacrifice, but it was also the pathway to restoration and salvation for every single one of us. So when I say to you that if you follow the will of the Lord, and even if that comes at tremendous personal cost that it is worthy, I don't say that because it's something I can prove with a 60-page study that shows A plus B equals C. I say that because the Lord of all of heaven and earth proved it with his own life and death. So don't listen to me. Listen to the word. Finally, not only is it worth it, but in this lifetime, if you pursue the will of the Lord instead of pursuing what you think is the right thing to do, you will actually have a more joyful and better life even in the midst of your sorrows. Well, pastor, you just said that we might be like Jesus, alone, scorned, bullied, beaten, ignored, 
And, and pastor, I know in my life that when I am most Christian, I am most persecuted. Well, yeah. But I didn't say that your life would be easier. That's the thing. We think that if we become believers, our lives will be easier. No, what I said is your life in the midst of all that pain and sorrow can be more joyful. It can be filled with the presence of God himself. I mentioned this last week and the week before, and I don't know if you caught it, but I'll bring it up the third time. When they found the disciples of Jesus in prison at midnight, what were they doing in the darkness? Singing God's praises. One of my favorite stories to ever come out of the Vietnam War, not that there were many good ones, was the story of a man who became a believer in Jesus Christ in this way. He was a prisoner of war. And the Bibles that they had in Vietnam in those days were used by the soldiers as toilet paper because they ran out of toilet paper. And this man was in charge of cleaning out those toilets. And he found those scriptures and would clean them off and have as his Bible used toilet paper. And that gave him the word of life like he had never known. And in the midst of being in his misery and squalor, he knew the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. So convinced of this truth were the early followers of Jesus that they would write all sorts of crazy things in the Bible, y'all. They would say things like, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face persecution. What? Jesus would say, blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness sake. What? I was discussing with somebody this week that in the United States for hundreds of years, pastors and churches, and even to this day, churches will try to convince people that the church is teaching you how to live a healthy and happy life. It's not. I can't promise you good health and I can't promise you daily happiness. The church is teaching you how to know the presence of God in the middle of what might well be for most of us a miserable fleshly experience and a horrible death. Can you say, as we sang earlier, this mortal flesh may fail? But God's kingdom is forever and I am a part of it. Do you believe that today? Do you believe that when Jesus was high and lifted up on the cross, that his blood that he shed took away your brokenness, your sins as far away as the east is from the west? Because if you believe that, you have to start letting that filter into all the pain that you're experiencing now. And know that as miserable as you might be in the flesh, 
as down as you might be in the mind, as suffering as your soul might experience, because the devil might be on you, that above all there is a king who reigns supreme and eternal, and his kingdom cannot be shaken. And from there, we talked about last week in Philippians, from there, from the kingdom of heaven, we expect a savior who is Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, as we conclude today, we acknowledge that you are back on the throne because you did not stay lifted high on the cross. Rather, as a corpse, you were dragged down into the deep of a cave and a stone was rolled in front of you, and as a soul, you defeated death itself, even in the darkness of the grave. And then, O oh glorious day, a stone was rolled away. O oh glorious day, Lord God, when you broke the chains of death and darkness that have ruled over mankind since the beginning. God, would you call into your kingdom each one of us? And Lord, if there are any in this room who doubt, who wonder, is it all real and does it all matter? Let them join with us in looking around and seeing that this world and all its darkness and death and all the misery that we encounter day to day does not have sufficient answers for all that is wrong. Only you. And only by the blood and body of Jesus being shed on our behalf can we begin to even understand those answers. Can we begin to experience the joyful life of the Spirit as He works His fruit in us? And if you here, folks, don't know that, would you pray Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Fill me with your spirit. And if you look up the list in your Bible or you know it from heart, you can say, Lord, give me love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control all the days of my life. God, we confess that we pursue our will instead of yours. And so we pray what you taught us, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your name we pray, amen. I'd like for us to end with hymn number 14. I encourage you to grab it and stand up. You're going to leave out of here and you're going to face a world that is afire with fear. We began today by confronting that fear and now we end today by affirming that in the midst of any fear that we face, God has and always will be our help.
O God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. Our shelter from the stormy blast and our eternal home. Under the shadow of thy throne, still may we dwell secure. Sufficient is thine arm alone, and our defense is sure. Before the hills in order stood, or earth received her frame. From everlasting thou art God, to endless years the same. A thousand ages in thy sight are like an evening gone. Short as the watch that ends the night before the rising sun. O God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. Be Thou our guide while life shall last, and our eternal home. Lord, bless you and keep you and go with you today. Amen.